Hey guys, this is Billy Hansen, and welcome to the Lynchburg Neighborhood Podcast. This is a podcast about the Lynchburg area, its people, and its history. I found that the more I get to know my neighbors, really get to know their stories, and the more I understand the history and the backstory and how things work here in Lynchburg, the more connected I feel to this place, and the richer my life becomes. So join me in exploring the Lynchburg neighborhood. Today is September 1st, 2019, and it is great to be alive and living in Lynchburg, Virginia. Up here at Mimosa Hill, we recently got to see some shooting stars race across the night sky, and it was a really cool experience. A few weeks back, we saw that the Perseid meteor shower was happening, and we got all excited, so we pulled some chairs out in the middle of the yard, stayed up late, and then we just sat and waited. Claire and Catherine were too tired, so it was just William and I, so we stayed out there for about an hour, laying down, just looking up at the night sky. What happens when they stop? Do they blow up? That's a good question. Because once they shoot across, then I never get to see them. And the meteors were only coming about every five to ten minutes. So if you blinked, you could miss them. See any yet? Um, so you really had to kind of no. just stare intently up at the night sky. Nothing on this side. And what I found was, yeah. anytime I happened to glance down at my phone, even for a second, that would be when a shooting star would happen. And William would say, oh, you missed it. It was one of those times where I had to put my phone away and had to just sit and soak up nature. And it was fun. We saw some uh, meteors, which really just are kind of amazing to see. It was just this fun memory for William and I to have. One of a thousand little memories that we've made at our home at Mosa Hill. Hmm. On this side. And today's show is about that. It's about home and what home means. And it's about a person that's trying to make sure that everyone in the Lynchburg neighborhood has a home and is able to make those memories. Here's my conversation with Kristen Nolan. Kristen, thank you so much for being here uh, You're welcome. to talk about housing I and love, homelessness. I love talking about housing and homelessness. Yeah. So tell me your name and what you do. Sure. I'm Kristen Nolan, and I am the Director of Housing Services at Miriam's House, um, which means that I am the person who gets to sort of oversee and develop new programs at our agency, which is focused on homelessness. Okay. Yeah. So what is... Tell me about Miriam's House. What is the change you guys are seeking to make in the community? Sure. So Miriam's House is 25 years old this year, and over those 25 years has been committed to ending homelessness in our community. So that mission has been the same. This sort of singular focus on homelessness has been the same over those 25 years. Um, what has kind of evolved over time is our program types and the different populations that we serve. So. Um, Miriam's House used to operate one single program um, and now operates five different programs all aimed at ending homelessness uh, but kind of in different ways. So um, we've had a long history of doing this work it just as with any kind of social problem um, homelessness has changed over time and what we know about homelessness and our data has has sort of pointed us to new and innovative solutions. Yeah. 
feels like a big goal, right? Like, it's not like, let's cut homelessness in half. Let's not reduce homelessness. It's let's end homelessness. It is. I mean, that's a big goal, it's right? It's a big goal. It is. But I honestly, like, maybe I'm crazy, but I honestly think we can do it. And um, much sort of bigger cities with a much bigger homeless population are making these huge strides in reducing their homeless numbers. And we are too in, in our community. So I do think ending homelessness, and I, I should probably qualify what I mean by that, yeah, um, yeah. which is not that no one will ever experience a housing crisis again. Housing crises will continue to come up. People will continue to face challenges like eviction or maybe a breakdown of a family dynamic so they have to leave their home or domestic violence. We know that people's housing will sometimes be unstable, mm. but ending homelessness means that when that happens, we have the right amount of resources and the right kinds of tools to quickly put them back into housing so that they aren't experiencing homelessness for a long time. So ending homelessness within our world of homeless response really means that we have the capacity to address every incident of homelessness within 30 days or less. Mm. Okay, so someone has an, some sort of event in their life mm -hmm. that causes a housing crisis. The idea is that you could both identify them and serve them within 30 days. And have them get... back into housing back with into house. supports wrapped around them, yes. That would, wow. be, that would be what we would consider sort of a functional zero on homelessness. Yeah, okay. So that is, if that's the goal, what is, how does it happen now? Do people sort of slip through the cracks or, or it takes a little while to find them housing? Is that kind of? It can, yeah. yeah. So, so we're working to change that by yeah. having um, what we call a by name list in our community. So we're mm. actively in real time every day tracking every person within certain subpopulations. So we're not, we're not yet to the point of being able to track every single homeless person, um, but we track every single homeless vet, every single homeless um, family, every mm. single homeless youth, and every single chronically homeless person in our community. Yeah. Um, and we meet twice a month to talk about all those different cases with all of our partners and make housing plans for each and every one of them. So by keeping this sort of laser focus on these individuals and their journey from homelessness to housing, nobody falls through the cracks. Yeah. So right now, what we're facing is that we need more affordable housing in our mm. community. And particularly, we need more resources around the chronic homeless population, so the most vulnerable, the people that have been homeless the longest, that have disabilities, that have sort of chronic conditions that have kept them out on the street for a long time, they need a, an intensive program called supportive housing. Mm. And we have some of that, but probably not enough. And so we, we're working on increasing our capacity around that particular intervention. So to answer your question really, as far as our, our progress, on this goal of functional zero. We do track the length of time that it takes for someone to become permanently housed after they become homeless. And right now we're at around like 40 days, I believe, 45 days, something like that. Um, so we're trying to, to cut that down so that, like you said, the identifying them, connecting them with services, finding them housing, all of that happens more quickly. But there are a lot of players. There are a lot of people sort of with their hands in the pot. So we wanna make sure that we're all communicating all the time so we don't lose anybody. And I guess different people have different needs, right? Like if you've got someone that just had an eviction, but they have a job and they've got kids, their needs may be different than someone who's been homeless for three years, right? Yeah. 
So what, what we did as a community probably about six years ago is start thinking um, more strategically about our resources based on this idea. So mm. there used to be in our community and most communities sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to homelessness, wherein someone would come into shelter. Once they were in an emergency shelter, they could kind of prove their worth by um, complying with certain referrals or complying with their medication or remaining abstinent from substances or whatever that looks like. So, um, and then they would move through to like a transitional housing program. And then after possibly two years in transitional housing, then they would become housed. Mm. And using that approach, A, is, is a very slow approach to addressing the problem. It also means we cannot serve the number of people who need to be served. And it also means that the most vulnerable people, the people who can't follow rules and um, comply with a lot of these recommendations, maybe because of a mental illness or some yeah. other disability, we're kind of leaving them behind with that model. So we ad adopted the Housing First model about six years ago in our community. And one really big piece of that model, and I can talk about it more, but one really big piece of that model is this tailored approach that you're talking about. It's recognizing that not everyone needs all the same things, mm. you know, so no two people really experience homelessness the same because they have different challenges and different barriers. So how do we tailor our services to fit their particular um, experience? So, so yeah, if someone has one eviction and they um, have a job and they have family support, more than likely with a little bit of case management, they can figure out their housing crisis and get back into housing. Um, someone who's been on the street for three years is probably going to need more intensive supports and more intensive um, housing navigation and housing case management to help them get back into housing and then to keep it um, over time. So yeah. that's an interesting idea. So you're saying housing with housing first is sort of philosophy change. Yes. It used to be, hey, you're homeless and you've got to sort of follow these steps, and essentially earn. Mm -hmm. Your housing, it's, at the end of it, that's the prize. Right. You're going to go through this process and then housing will be the prize. And you're saying this is a fundamental change where housing is the first thing. And once you have housing, we can work on the rest. Yep. Housing first turns that on its head, essentially. Um, yeah. I bet it was a, you know, kind of a tricky thing to get buy-in because everyone's been doing it one way for a while. Imagine that transition is, is every, you know, getting everyone on board. But six years later, I mean, what do you, how's that transition gone it's it's been um, there is pushback you know I think um, a lot of a lot of people um, have been um, sort of led to believe that homelessness is a personal failing or a, mm. a, an individual um, an individual's flaw has caused their homelessness when what we know is that homelessness is a systemic failing yeah. that you know that housing is not affordable that jobs don't pay enough to afford housing. If you yeah. look at, you know, the out of reach report and these other data sets that we can see where w wages are pretty stagnant and housing prices are going up and that people that are working minimum wage need two and a half jobs to afford a basic two bedroom, yeah. those kinds of things. We see how systemically housing is, is just that out of reach for some people. Mm. I think the buy-in has come just by demonstrating that it works yeah. um, over time. So we started our rapid rehousing program in 2013 where we did essentially what Housing First says. We, we connected homeless families back into housing as quickly as possible. 
We then wrapped services around them based on what their needs were. Those services are all voluntary, but people have this sort of intrinsic motivation once they're in housing to try to keep it. You know, mm. we really found that people who are either sleeping outside or sleeping in a shelter bed, they don't feel a lot of hope and they also don't feel a lot of motivation to make changes maybe in, in their mental health treatment compliance or in their recovery process because they, they don't see a lot to lose. You know, you yeah. help people connect back with housing. I mean, house, your home is, is who you are, is your identity. I mean, there's so much about having a home that is more than just a structure, you yeah. know. Um, and so it restores people's sense of dignity. It helps yeah. them start to think about bigger goals and, and longer term plans. And so we've seen this work for people. We've seen yeah. housing transform people's health, transform people's mental health, their school performance, their job performance. And so I think showing how this works and how the outcomes really do speak for themselves has helped us gain more buy-in. Yeah. So I guess one success metric mm -hmm. could be with rapid rehousing, one, how quickly you get them, mm -hmm. identify them and get them back into housing. And then what happens next, right? Like, right. how did the next year go? How did the next two right. years go? Do you have any, you guys measure that? We do. So we, I actually just looked at the first half of this year for our, how long it's taking us. And we're under 30 days right now for getting right. folks from, that are in our rapid rehousing program um, at Miriam's house from homeless sort of identification of them into housing. So we yeah. feel really good about how quickly we're being able to make those connections. And that comes that comes down to, it's not just us, you know, that sure. that's shelter staff that's helping us identify these families. And that's landlords who are willing to take a chance on a family that might have an eviction or, or a criminal background, or, you know, maybe they don't have income right now. Yeah. So, so landlords that are partnering with us and willing to take that risk. We do track for two years. So our data shows the last time that we ran these numbers at the end of last year, um, our retention rate was 96%. So, so only 4% of the families we'd served two years prior had returned to homelessness. So we're able to track if they come back into the homeless response system after being exited from the program. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we think that's a huge metric because housing first is not housing only. Um, we know that just giving someone housing is not enough. And so we, we really put a high value on the services that we offer to help people learn how to be a good tenant, how to be a good neighbor, how to you know navigate these different mainstream benefits like cooling assistance or heating assistance or SNAP, things that they need to make their budget stretch enough to pay their rent. So all of those things, those kind of skills and referrals and things that we build in when we're working with them, we want that to carry on even after they exit from the program mm. so they can keep their housing long-term. So yeah, it's not 100%, but we feel good about 96% sure. have stayed housed. It's um, amazing. You know, two years after program exit. Yeah. So how do you find the housing? I spent time with one of your case managers. Okay. And, I, and she was describing what she does and I'm like, you're almost like a real estate agent. Yeah. But for like the recently homeless, like you're connecting them with landlords, getting it set up, finding the right spot. And like you said, there's some challenges. If you've got things in your history, whether it be criminal or the eviction, mm -hmm. I mean, eviction on your record can keep you from a lot of housing. Sure. How do you find housing? How do you? So we have on staff a housing locator and you're right. I mean, her job is very similar to working in real estate. Yeah. She is constantly looking at listings, reaching out to property managers, reaching out to landlords, talking to them about the program. Um, 
asking them if they partnered with us, what are their, what are their criteria and restrictions? You know, yeah. we have some landlords that are willing to say, you know, I normally would expect income at this level before I would rent to somebody, but if they're working with you guys and getting help with job location and, you know, getting some assistance in case management, I'll, I'll make an exception. And then we have some landlords that just want to keep their, whatever their normal criteria might be. So yeah. we keep sort of a database of, you know, each landlord that we've worked with and what their particular criteria are for, for tenants. We've had some success with big property management companies. Yeah. We've had a lot of success with little mom and pop landlords that are, you know, altruistic and have sort of a heart for helping people get back on their feet. Yeah. So yeah, she's, that's her full-time job is, is locating housing for homeless individuals. Yeah. And, and then, and then doing some maintenance of relationships, you know, and keeping up with those landlords and, if something doesn't go quite right, if if there's a a noise complaint or um, you know uh, an abuser shows up and that yeah. you know that they're dealing with some things that are challenging as far as keeping up with their lease, the nice thing is that the landlord has a a, a case manager that they can come back to and say, I need some help with this tenant. So there's sort of a liaison there. Yeah. Um, so part of that is just relationship building and trying to. Put out fires if they come out, come up, yeah. you know. Um, and then part of it is is just constantly trying to diversify who we have um, on that list of partners. Because yeah. we do, we house, house people out in the counties. We we really want to make the housing location process about the client and what their choice is as far as where they live. To the extent that we can, if they need to be on a certain bus line, if they want their kids to go to a certain school we want to be able to honor that choice. And the, the best way to do that is to have a really um, sort of broad um, net that we can cast. So how does that program, so let's say there's a landlord listening like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. I'd like to help. Sure. How does that program work? So what, what happens is the housing locator does an initial inspection of the property to be sure that it is, it meets, you know, habitability standards. Right. The housing locator also looks at the pricing and makes sure that it's that it meets fair market rent standards. So because we're using grant funds from both federal and state sources for these programs, we have to be sure that we're not renting something that's just an exorbitant price. And also we, we don't want to set our client up for failure right. long term. So so they look at those two things, sort of the reasonableness of the rent and the, the habitability. So it's, yeah. it's just two basic standards. And once those two boxes are checked, then, um, and if the client says, yeah, this is where I want to live, and the landlord says, yep, I'm willing to rent to this person, then we usually pay a security deposit and a first month's rent to quickly get them out of shelter. Asking clients to save up enough for that will prolong their homelessness. So we pay those initial sort of move-in costs, and then we start doing in-home case management visits with them. And those initial visits often are more about what furniture do you need? We want you to have you know, a bed to sleep in and, and to start feeling like this is your home. And then we also do really basic things like go over a, a worksheet that says, what does my lease say? And just yeah. break down the lease really in simple terms to make sure that the client understands it. And then we can continue to pay either all or a part of the rent over the next several months until they're able to take their rent on on their own. Yeah. Um, so every time we go in and do a case management visit, there's a budgeting conversation about what that client can afford and what we want to supplement their, their rent with so that we're not leaving the landlord hanging. So it's, it's again, it's, it's not one size fits all. So sure. some clients get, you know, 
two months of rental assistance and then they're back in the workforce and they're making enough to pay their rent, that's great. And some clients, it might take longer for them to get back to work to a place where they can actually afford their bills. Yeah. So I guess it's from the landlord's perspective, it's not that Miriam's house is the tenant. You guys aren't nope. signing the lease and putting in someone that you're working with. You're not a co-signer on the lease. Nope. But what you know when you work with you guys is that you're going to have your team as a support system right. for the tenant. And then you're also going to help with those first upfront costs so they can get on their feet. Yeah. So you've at least know that. That's then, exactly right. It's yeah. it's a it is short term rental assistance. It's not like a housing choice voucher where it's right. forever, or as long as the client you know um, maintains it. And it in the lease is in that client's name, so yeah. that it is the, you know their lease, yeah. their place to live. And yeah. when that assistance ends, they don't have to move. I think that's a really big piece is that like permanency and stability that it builds yeah. in. I mean, it's just so true that when you're in a tough spot. You don't always need help forever, but sometimes just two months of somebody, like what you guys are doing, getting them through, yeah, could make a world of difference. You can get caught up on some things. You're in a better spot, right? I mean, like, think about. I mean, I think all the time about myself as a college student. We we work with yeah. a lot of homeless youth right now who are in that age range. You know, who are really vulnerable, who are just starting out in life. Yeah. Um, but. There were plenty of times in college where, A, I just, I didn't have my stuff together. I definitely wasn't a, a stellar tenant. <laughs> right. Um, but because I had my mom and dad to co-sign on things or to, to bail me out one month here or there if I was behind on rent, yeah. you know, I kept my housing and I, I, I walked away with a pretty good, like, landlord reference, you yeah. know. And a lot of the, a lot of the people that we work with just don't have that. And they don't have family members that can, you know, throw a check out for, for a month's rent to bridge them. Yeah. Sometimes it really is just that sort of like the difference is just, um, you know, having a family member or a resource that can fill that gap. Um, and sometimes yeah. we're that for yeah. people, you know. And now, so you do that, uh, sort of the matchmaking, mm-hmm. finding a tenant, right. finding a landlord. But you're also a landlord, right? So we are, <laughs> yes, which is so such an interesting um, sort of to, to be on both sides of things. So we are housing providers in the sense that we we run a supportive housing program and we own the building that that supportive housing program exists in so Mm -hmm. our our building on magnolia street has 11 units of supportive housing for chronically homeless women so um, it's single room occupancy style so they have a living room a bedroom a sort of little kitchenette area but they share bathrooms and full kitchens kind of dorm style you Mm -hmm. know but private units that they sign a lease for. Um, And then my job as the supportive services provider is to work with them to be able to maintain that over time. So we're wearing, as an organization, we're wearing two hats at once with that program. We're we're the landlord, the property management side of things, and then we're also the case manager of the supportive services side of things, which is interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a population that is very high need, very vulnerable, most have experienced long links of homelessness. And so with that, you know, victimization on the street, lots of trauma throughout their history. So a lot of what my job consists of with that program is building some initial trust and rapport, helping those clients just with the transition of living in their own place. Mm. It's pretty typical with supportive housing to have those tenants want to go back out and sleep back outside because that's what they're used to, you yeah. know? So 
being flexible with that and knowing that this is your unit, you can always come back, but if you want to take your tent and go outside for a couple of nights because that's less scary to you than living inside, um, great, but mm. I'm going to keep reaching out to you until you know, you're ready to come back in and we can continue to offer you supports and resources. So it's a longer program because it takes a longer time to kind of build that rapport and get people to a place where they might be ready to move on to a different kind of housing option. Yeah. Is there a cost to them or is this... So that, that program is, because it is permanent housing, yeah. um, it's, it's like subsidized housing in the sense that it's based on income. Yeah. Um, okay. So if someone doesn't have any income, their rent is zero, they're getting like a disability check, um, which a, a lot of them are either eligible for or already receiving disability, then it's 30% of their income. And is to, that a voucher or is it, a, like they don't have to wait in the long line for the no. voucher or the public housing, Correct. it's a different program. It is, yeah. It's funded, it, it's funded through HUD, but it's through the Continuum of Care program. And is so. it scarce? Like, you got to wait for them? Or just wait for a bed to open up? Is it, how do they allocate, right? Is it just a bed or to the individual? or? So the, the funding comes to the building. Okay. Uh, yeah. So gotcha. it doesn't follow the person. So it's project-based. Yes, essentially. It's, it's slightly different than project-based vouchering okay. is, but it's through... HUD's like homeless program, which is the continuum of care program. So they're funding 11 bed, 11 rooms. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, that's a really nerdy. That's okay. <laughs> but I'm curious. I'm like, yeah. And that comes from HUD. It comes from HUD, yeah. Okay. And th all of those units are filled through that by name list I mentioned. Yeah. So we have that list of every homeless, uh, chronically homeless person in our community. When there's a, a vacancy, we, we alert our sort of partners and then the list basically guides how that unit is filled. So yeah. if there are four chronically homeless people that are needing housing, the person with the most severe service needs and the, the highest vulnerability score, which is also kind of nerdy, but there's an assessment to, yeah. to um, sort of gauge someone's vulnerability, that person will be prioritized for that opening. The, the process for filling those units is not something that really I have control over. It goes to this committee basically who looks at that by name list and says this person's been homeless the longest, they have the highest service needs, yeah. so we're going to prioritize them for this opening. Are there more beds like this in Lynchburg? So the Housing Authority has a, a grant for permanent supportive housing, but it's scattered sites, so they, they it's like rapid rehousing but long term, so they, they um, rent from private landlords. Okay. Yeah. Is there a waiting list for this? It's the same thing. If they have an opening, we do it off of the by name list. But that by name list is the waiting list, I guess, right? Essentially, but but we don't consider it a waiting list because anyone that's on that list, if there's not an opening in supportive housing, we're still working on a housing plan for them. Gotcha. So that the solution isn't like just wait on this list forever until an opening happens in supportive housing. Yeah. Ideally, that's the right match for them and we would want to have enough supportive housing to serve all of the chronically homeless folks that we yeah. are aware of, but that doesn't, we don't have that. We don't yeah. have the capacity to match every chronically homeless person with a supportive housing bed, whether it's um, site-based like ours or scattered site like the housing authority. Yeah. So what happens at that point is that we try to think of other solutions, whether yeah. that's you know, a rooming house somewhere that they can afford with their disability, getting them on all the subsidized housing waiting lists. I mean, we try to find any other solution we can. So. We wouldn't consider it a waiting list per se. Sure. And it's not a matter of just building more beds. You'd have to have funding. You'd have to have yes. more HUD 
Um, it doesn't have to be HUD funded. There's sure. there's state money for supportive housing. Yeah. Um, our community has not taken advantage of that, but it is out there. It's for supportive housing for people with severe mental illnesses. Yeah. That would be wonderful to have because it helps address um, some of the gaps um, that exist. So HUD funding is pretty restrictive that it has to be chronically homeless individuals. The state money allows for a little more flexibility around who can be served with that supportive housing. So it doesn't have to be just federal funds. There, there are other um, funding sources for supportive housing. So we've been talking about this list, mm-hmm. this by name list. Yes. Let's talk numbers. How many? I don't have a sense. How many chronically homeless are there in? Is it the city of Lynchburg or Lynchburg area? Or? It's the Lynchburg area. Yeah. Um, so actually, we've since we started the list in October, we've been really pretty aggressive with the list and we've housed 211 people off of the list since October. Since October. Um, feels like a lot. That's great. A, yeah, it's awesome. Um, it's pretty exciting because it creates a lot of momentum with all of the partners at the table to, to keep just honing in on these, on these priority subpopulations. Yeah. Um, I should mention that our community is part of the Built for Zero initiative, which yeah. is a national... Um, movement to end chronic and veteran homelessness. So we've been really, really just, you know, gangbusters on on those two. Like we just really, really want to see those numbers go down. Our veteran numbers, we actually, last time that we met, we were really excited because our chronic number was down to five people. Um, And our veteran number was down to, I think, I'm sorry, I don't know off the top of my head. It was something like eight. So we've really just brought a lot of resources to the table to get people housed. Um, We have a street outreach worker who has been just so focused on on finding and and engaging chronically homeless people and helping them find housing solutions. So we're really excited. The the national benchmark for to be considered at sort of zero for chronic homelessness, which seems counterintuitive, is that you have three chronically homeless people in your community. So... Yeah. We're really close to hitting that benchmark in our community. And then we have to sustain it. So we've, we've sure. put all this energy into this list and keeping up with where people are going and how people are yeah. getting housed. And once we hit these sort, certain sort of goals or benchmarks, we don't want to go, oh, our job's done. We've done yeah. it. You know, Then we've got to sustain it over time. That's a big deal. 211 housed mm-hmm. since October. Yeah, it's really exciting. That's, and that's not in a, they're not in a shelter housed, right? No, no, they're in their own housing. This yeah. is in housing. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a big deal. Yeah. And that, so some of those are families. So, so some of that 211 are kids. So it's not just like 211 households, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, 211 people. So 211 people. That were homeless are now have housing. Mm-hmm. Since October. Yep. Yeah. It's a big deal. It is. Wow. I think it just speaks to the power of bringing all these different resources together and not considering it program by program, but instead looking at it as a system and aligning the resources that we have with the the folks who most need it. So being really strategic about what we can bring to the table and who we can serve most urgently. And hopefully over time, we do keep expanding our resources and we we can sort of open that list up to every homeless person instead of right now how we're really sort of laser focused on chronic and veteran and youth yeah. and families. So yeah, I think in yeah. recognizing though that like you said, there are there are people that will self-resolve. 
Across the country, most communities, and ours included, have seen that about a third of people who become homeless sort of figure it out on their own. Yeah. So we don't want to start offering resources prematurely to, to a household that's going to figure out their homelessness without those additional sort of dollars or, or you know, case management time or whatever yeah. that looks like, um, because we do have a finite amount. So we want to make sure that we're really thinking through you know, aligning the right resource with the, with the right need, yeah. if that makes sense. It does. What are some causes of homelessness? Um, what, how, how do you get in that spot? I know they're varied. I think of a lot of people think of homelessness as it's a vet who's been out there for years. He's mm -hmm. on the street, right? Like that's just a picture. <clears throat> right. Like they went to New York once in the DC and that's <laughs> right. what they saw, right? <clears throat> and there's this thought that comes around that people just, some people just want to be homeless. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I hear that. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that's, I would say that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but it's here. Yeah. It's a common thing It's a that you common hear. thing, yeah. <clears throat> um, I guess, can you give us a picture of what, sure. what that well, looks like? One thing I would say is that we do track how many, about 800-ish people become homeless in, in a year's time in our community. So mm. of those, let's say 800, the vast majority of them are first-time homeless. So... This idea that people who are homeless or have been homeless forever and they just are cycling through their, you know, that it's this sort of incurable problem, I think is, is sort of misguided. Most of the people that become homeless in our community, this is the first time they're experiencing homelessness. Now, we do know that becoming homeless is then a risk factor for, for future homelessness. So that's not a, it's not a good thing, but it also means that you know, our, this sense of, of long-term chronic homelessness is a little bit um, off the mark. So causes. I, I just really always beat this drum that the, the cause of homelessness is poverty. Um, yeah. And that sounds so simplistic, but it's, it's just true. There are many, many, many people, way more housed people than homeless people who have a mental illness, who have a substance use problem, who you know, or going through a divorce, yeah. whatever, whatever sort of issue, personal issue that's going on that are protected from homelessness because they aren't living in poverty. Yeah. Um, so homelessness is poverty sort of plus. Yeah. I would say working in this field for the past six years, it's been very rare that I have encountered a family or a, a household that's homeless that has is making much above the poverty line or has any kind of sort of wealth. So it's, it, I just think it's important to always come back to, there may be a mental illness involved, there may be some other kind of sort of personal issue going on, but that poverty is always kind of underlying that, that issue. And I also think it's important to um, acknowledge that structural racism also yeah. is a cause of homelessness and has to do with people's housing stability. Mm. Um, and I think that's a, a hard thing for people to sort of acknowledge and grapple with. But when we look at the assets that people have generationally and housing wealth, we know that people of color just generally do not have access to the same level of resources that uh, a, a white family does. So we've actually recently been really looking at racial disparity data in our um, homeless response system and trying to, to keep an eye on those disparities both in who becomes homeless and then also who gets served mm. after becoming homeless and then who becomes housed, you know? So do our outcomes have any sort of racial disparity in mm. them? Are, are, 
you know, people who enter the homeless response system more or less likely to get additional services. Um, so we want to keep an eye on those, those sorts of disparities as well. So yeah. I just can't overstate the systemic pieces um, that, that yeah. really are the causation. Yeah. But then there's also on, on a more sort of micro individual level, I think we have to acknowledge that at least until recently, a lot of people did not have Medicaid. A lot of people didn't have ways to access um, some help that they might have been able to leverage to avoid a housing crisis down the road. You know, mm -hmm. so if somebody is having a, a mental health crisis and they can't get help for that, and then they end up missing work for several days, and then they end up one paycheck less, and then they end up homeless. You know, yeah. there, there's sort of a, an access issue too that exists. So that's also something that I always think about is is sort of access on an individual level. Yeah. And uh, we don't have enough affordable housing. We don't. So I should just bang that drum a little bit too. Is I that, mean, you know, and I, I know you're, you're talking to lots of people about housing and yeah. our affordable housing crisis in this, in this area is not unique. I mean, people are, yeah. are experiencing this all over the country, but it is our community and it is our neighbors that, you know, that can't access housing because they can't afford it. So I think you're right. I think when I talked with just a couple of things, when I talked with Judy Brooks mm -hmm. about students mm -hmm. who are homeless. She said almost always it's an eviction mm -hmm. just because they couldn't afford the rent mm -hmm. rather than some personal flaw. Right. Right. It was just, it's hard when you're, when you see where the numbers are, when you just actually do the math on what you would make about at the property line and what things cost to live. Like it's right. just expensive to be alive. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's just hard. You got to make tough choices. And right. Is it healthcare this month or is it housing? Right. Or is it the car? And then people have that crisis and then it sort of spirals a little bit right. because your gap housing, the motel is not cheap. Right? right. And then the other thing, you know, I talked with Jeremy White at Legal Aid and yeah. they finally got eviction data. So there'd been this, there hadn't been eviction data for the city of Lynchburg. It'd been hard to find, eviction lab couldn't find it, but it was, we had all the other cities, you know, Richmond we've heard about. And they just got the data back. Uh, they went through the court system and gathered it and tabulated it and they did a great job. But in 2016, there were 1,200 evictions in Lynchburg, which is about eight and a half percent. That means there's three or four evictions per day. Yep. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of housing displacement, right? Yes. A lot of instability. And then you get that on your record. Right. And then over 10 years, that's 12,000 households in Lynchburg who have the scarlet E, what mm -hmm. they call it, you know, the eviction, where you can't get public housing. Right. Subsidized housing. Most landlords won't rent to you. Mm -hmm. So then your options are kind of limited. They're the people who would rent to you mm -hmm. with an eviction on your record. They're rooming houses. Mm -hmm. There's the street, right? Like there's hotels, there's cars. It's a big problem. It's a huge problem. And I, I think what happens generally is that we're seeing the fallout of that a few steps down the road in homeless response. So people get evicted and they try something else, like you're saying, maybe yeah. a hotel or motel, um, maybe staying with a friend or family member, and that's just not sustainable. And then, then they end up in a shelter. So we're not seeing people straight from eviction court, you know, into the shelter. There's right. usually a couple of steps where they're trying some other solutions um, but not able to sustain those. And then they do end up ultimately homeless. And so I am so grateful for legal aid and, and folks that are yeah. pulling together this data to think about how do we swim upstream a little bit? How can we maybe prevent some of these evictions? 
they may not be imminently homeless in that moment, but, but down the road they might be homeless. Homeless in our world meaning living in a shelter or sleeping outside on the streets. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that because Virginia looks so bad right, <laughs> um, and has so many cities in the top 10 of eviction data in the, in the country, that something will come of that as far as some funding to, to prevent evictions for folks so that they don't yeah. end up. Because the truth of the matter is that it's not just taxing on that family and it's not just the you know, long-term effects of having that eviction on their particular record. But it's expensive for the whole community yeah. to have these hypermobile families that are bouncing from place to place. It's expensive for the courts to be processing all of these evictions. It's expensive um, for the healthcare system, for schools. There's all these other systems that are impacted by people having unstable housing. You yeah. know, so it, it's not just an individual impact. You know, it, it ripples out into the whole community, yeah. and then it makes you know neighborhoods just less safe or less cohesive. There, there's all these other impacts that we know come from eviction that um, maybe we can't quantify, but but we, I think if we care about our community, we we want to care about if people have stable permanent housing yeah. um, as sort of just a fundamental value. Yeah, that's what Jeremy was was talking about, this idea that a small investment in housing preservation, mm -hmm. keeping someone in housing, mm -hmm. preventing an eviction, eviction diversion programs, might seem like a lot of money, but on the back end, all the services and the impact on the community, this might be a great investment. I think we haven't even begun to, to estimate what this is costing. Yeah. You know, Just processing paperwork at Department of Social Services yeah. to transfer your case from one jurisdiction to the other. Yeah. I don't know what that costs, but if that's happening in the thousands every year, just because of evictions, it, yeah. there are so many sort of down the road impacts. And I completely agree that we would be, it would be a great return on investment to put some money into housing. And there, there's great, really great research and data coming out looking at, this is sort of the extreme end of it, but when we look at chronic homelessness and how much it costs for someone to sleep outside mm. and the frequent use that they have of jails, emergency rooms, psychiatric hospitals, and then they're going right back out to the street, yeah. the cost of that is much less than investing in helping them have an apartment yeah. and some services in place. Uh, not to mention just morally and ethically, yeah. you know, what, what, are, what do we believe in as a society? So hmm. I, I wanted to loop back to your question about, you know, when people say that some people just want to be homeless. Hmm. And, and I, would, I would just always push back on that by saying, what options have they been given? Yeah. You know, um, many times when we have people who have been outside for a long time, choices have, have a lot of times been made for them by the sheer fact that they haven't been offered options. Offering somebody a few nights on a cot in a shelter when it's cold outside, but then putting them back out on the street or offering them, you know, a quick detox through the medical ICU and then discharging them back to the street. They're, they're not really being offered many mm -hmm. options. They go to jail for a few days for you know, whatever, trespassing, some kind of status crime because they're homeless. And then they're put back out on the street. And meanwhile, they're just accumulating barriers to housing yeah. um, by having more and more charges on their record. But I don't know that they're really making a choice. I think, I think a lot of systems are choosing things for people like that. I don't think that people would choose sleeping outside if they were offered the services and the housing that would actually support them and being able to be housed. Hmm. 
So I want to change gears back in January. Yes. January? Yeah. It's January. Mm-hmm. It was cold every day except for the day we met. <laughs> but we met one morning at 5 a.m. at the farm at the farmer's market downtown yeah. mm-hmm. to do the point in time count. Yeah. Now, it was a really interesting morning, um, really interesting day, really. Uh, but what were we doing? What what was What is the point in time count? The point in time count is a annual one night of the year that every community throughout the country counts the number of people that are experiencing homelessness on that one night. It is a long-standing sort of uh, data collection effort that communities use to kind of benchmark how they're doing on homelessness. So the idea is that you're, you're both counting people that are in shelters, so in domestic violence shelters and emergency shelters, but you're also having this create, coordinating this big effort um, to go out on the street and canvas for people who are sleeping outside. And we use those numbers to compare year over year how many people in our community are experiencing homelessness on a single night in January. January is usually the time that's picked because it's cold yeah. and more than likely people are, are seeking shelter rather than sleeping outdoors. That doesn't mean there aren't people sleeping outside. We, we every year do find people who are unsheltered, but the thought process being that a lot of people will be driven to, to, to seek shelter because of the conditions outside. So what was, uh, what was the result? Do you know the result? I do. I do. We, we submitted all of our data um, and we're really excited about it because we had a pretty big decrease from last year. Yeah. So that's what we always want to see is, is our numbers go down. So we counted 78 people in our community experiencing homelessness on that night. Okay. And 14 of those people were sleeping outside and the rest were in either emergency shelter or domestic violence shelter. So since 2015, we've had a 67% decrease in our point in time numbers, and we're really excited about that. That's great. So what that means, sort of what that translates to for us is that it goes back to the housing first idea. So the faster we offer somebody housing and get them out of a shelter, the smaller the number of people on a single night is going to be. In the past, when we made people sort of wait and prove their worthiness for housing, we would see sort of an inflation of the number of people in shelter um, because we weren't offering them sort of a solution or a way out quickly. So while we see pretty steady numbers when we look at a whole annual um, count of like over the whole course of the year, how many people became homeless, we're seeing pretty stable numbers. On a single night, we're seeing that number go down. So a lot of times it seems like funding from federal and state, mm-hmm. and even from just people who who give, just donors. It seems like it de- it's dependent on how big the problem is. Yeah. Are you guys worried at all <laughs> that you're going to get so good at this, that these numbers are going to keep going down, that you're funding? <laughs> like, I don't know how it works. Is, yeah, that, is that a concern a at all? <laughs> um, so I think that's why it's important to kind of, to the point in time number is important because it's a this sort of unduplicated count that we can use to compare one year to the next, right? But I think it's important to focus on that whole year round picture. Right. Um, And to, I think you and I have talked some about how this point in time count is sort of a snapshot and we wanna wanna show the movie, right? The the whole, the video, the the whole picture that that is moving and living and and is more than just a single night. So we, 
it's tricky, right? So, so it, almost in any nonprofit world, you, you're kind of commodifying a need, right? And so you do want to be putting yourself out of business, but you yeah. also want to, want to be able to tell a compelling story about why you still do need to exist. Yeah. And that for us right now in our community, the, the bigger picture story is that over the course of a year, there are still 800 people becoming homeless yeah. every year. And across the entire system, only 46% of those people are exiting to a permanent housing destination. Hmm. So we have work to do. Yeah. The, the people that are coming into shelter and disappearing are coming into shelter and then exiting to, you know, a, a temporary destination. We want to start making some changes in order to help them exit to permanent housing. We want to see that number go up. Yeah. So there's definitely work to do. We still have, you know, a lot of folks over the course of the year that need these additional interventions. And to be honest, we can't sustain this decrease on a, in our point in time numbers if we don't continue to have the, the housing resources that we have. If yeah. we lose funding and have less rapid rehousing or we lose funding and have less supportive housing, these numbers will go up. Yeah. So sustaining that does require ongoing investment and we have to tell that story too, I yeah. think. you know. And then we have to tell the individual stories. I mean, so much of my work is, we think about data all the time, but so much of my day-to-day work is about helping an individual homeless family or an individual homeless woman either get housing or sustain their housing. And once they leave our program, they still generally are in poverty. They still have struggles. Um, And so we still have a role to play to continue to support them even after they are able to pay their rent. That's great. And that's that's a benchmark where we're aiming towards but then there's more than that you know we we want them to have a full life that that includes more than just being able to barely scrape by every month yeah you know and so we do we have an aftercare support program um, and that's where i get to keep in touch with folks that we've served in the past so they're no longer actively program participants in rapid rehousing or supportive housing, but they, they come back once a month for a support group where we just offer each other sort of support and ideas. It's peer driven. They, they really support one another and share resources, share ideas about jobs, you know, and I think that's a really important component too, is to be able to continue to support them even past that initial kind of housing stability. Yeah. So um, when we walked that Mm -hmm. morning, we were walking around, looking for homeless, yeah. looking down alleys, going under bridges, mm-hmm. going down trails. I know that's not what your day job, like that's not, yeah. it's not every day you're out. And it was early and it was dark. And, and it was raining. It was raining. Yeah, that's it was wet. <laughs> that's a fun, fun it was, day. It was. But we got to this building on Main Street, mm-hmm. uh, the former city auditorium. Right. And uh, or it's now going to be a cool music venue. But it wasn't then. It's been sort of vacant for a long time. And the door was open mm-hmm. in the middle of the night. And it seemed like there may be people, that'd be a great place mm-hmm. to stay on a winter night. And you're like, we're going in. Uh-huh. And it was pitch dark. And I'm like, oh, what? We were, we're doing what? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I think we need to go in here and check. Uh, and so we went in. Mm-hmm. And I'd been in it before in the daytime. Right. And it's a little spooky in the daytime. Mm-hmm. So in the middle of the night, dark, don't know who's in here, what's going on. But you were just bold, like leading the way. I'm like behind you as an assistant. <laughs> and you're going into every room. And I'm like, oh, I don't. And you're like, yeah, we're going down this hallway, this hallway. Where does that uh, sort of 
fearlessness come from for you? Huh, that's so funny that you think of it that way because I don't necessarily think of myself as fearless. Um, that's an interesting question. I, um, I guess being a social worker for a long time and being in this particular field for six years, so working within the homeless response world, I, I tend to think that most people who are, who are unsheltered are more at risk of victimization and have sort of more um, risk factors than I do as a, as a professional who's going out trying to outreach to people. Um, I don't, I wouldn't have done that by myself. I yeah. think I felt emboldened by having, you know, partners with me, <laughs> yeah. but I, I guess there's feels, whether it's for the sake of the count or for the sake of serving people who are sort of the most disconnected and the most yeah. sort of marginalized that you have to have some bravery because there's almost just a moral imperative to do it, you know? So yeah, I don't think of myself as like fearless per se, but I maybe I'm more stubborn than anything. <laughs> and I, I just when I believe that we're that we're doing the right thing by sort of aggressively outreaching to people who generally are sort of ignored or invisible, I I guess I feel that there's this sort of like righteousness to it and it, it sort of pushes me. I don't know. Does that make any sense? It does. Because I was at the door thinking, what if somebody's in here in their sleep and like we startle them mm -hmm. and we're all the way in this building? Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking like worst case scenario. But you're at the door thinking, from what, what I hear from you is that there may be someone in need in here. We're going to find them. But, yeah, that would be the... <laughs> that's not what I was thinking. <laughs> but, oh, that's great. But I was just following your lead. I'm like, oh, she's done this a hundred times. Um... <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> you had done it before? I, I had done it before, not a hundred times. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. I love that that was your... That was my interpretation of it. take of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then the other thing is we came out, we're getting in our car, and there's a guy whose car had conked out in the middle of Main oh, Street. Oh, yeah. He was so sweet. And you're like... Oh, yeah. Like, we're jumping him. And then you pull down and like do a Yui <laughs> in the middle of the road and... Judy gets out and she's like getting his medical history and helping him like with services and you're jumping his car. And I'm like, y'all are like, y'all are, so, are like social workers. You are the front line. You're like, I'm looking for people in need. Let's, we're doing this, but we're doing this too. We're, yeah. we're doing this count, but we also, this guy needs a jump. Right. <laughs> it was just like amazing. Oh, I'm, oh, that's really cool. I think, yeah, I, you know, the social work code of ethics, I, I can really nerd out about social work, so. Okay. The social work code of ethics is, I think, just an amazing document. And it talks about how you're committing your, by choosing this career, you're committing yourself to these, these values. And some of them being like the importance of human relationships and valuing that. And that's sort of like a primary driver for change, right? is engaging people as sort of a partner or an equal in, in change. Dignity and worth of every human person is one of those driving values. Um, and then social justice and like working for system change. So it has this, these levels of, of where you're sort of committed to working as, as your career. So it's, you know, these individual needs and then these systemic 
um, sort of injustices and how can you fix those? And I love that because I, I think that my job at Miriam's house allows me to do both of those things. You know, I get to meet people who are in a great amount of need and to see them as like, they're the experts on their life. I get to meet them where they are. It's like such an honor for me to get to work alongside them to hopefully improve the quality of their life over time, but just honor through that process that like they, they have inherent dignity and worth whether, whatever choice they make. You know, there's a sort of non-judgmentalness that I just, I think is really important in building that relationship. But then I also get to work on, you know, big picture stuff with our data and changing some of our policies across the system. And I get to do both, you know, and that's really, really cool. Have you always had that, that strong sense of like, what's just and unjust? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, so actually at Boonesboro Elementary School in third grade, there was a career day and a social worker came to career day and I went home and was like, I'm gonna be a social worker. And my mom and dad were like, no, it's <laughs> probably not a great idea. It's gonna be hard work. You're not gonna make any money. And I just, I, that just thought never left my mind, you know? Yeah. So when I started looking at colleges, it was like, who has a social work program? I just, that, that just never went away. And yeah, I feel lucky that that was sort of clear from the beginning and that doesn't mean that it's always been easy because it's, you know, there have been moments where I think, well, I should have just like, <laughs> I don't know, can I be like a bank teller or something where I go to work and I go home and I never think about it again. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but I love it. And I, and I, and I don't think that there's anything special about me. I think it's a really special profession that yeah. trains you to engage with people in this really authentic way that, that hopefully means that their life is better in some way. Yeah. But it's, it's really about like them and helping them find their strengths and whatever they can build on to, you know, to move, to move forward while also fighting for better policies like living wages and better affordable housing and I don't know. Yeah. So what would you, so my daughter's in third grade. Okay. In fourth grade, <laughs> and you uh, were a third grader when you, mm -hmm. what, uh, what would you say to third grade Kristen to encourage her? What would you tell her about this? career that she can't see then? That's a great question. I would say, oh man, that's a really good question. I think I would say to third grade Kristen that probably had a, a very romantic idea about what social work would look like, that it, it isn't necessarily romantic mm -hmm. and that it requires you to get really cl up close with like suffering. Mm -hmm. And that can be hard, but it also can be what motivates you to continue to do the work so that you can alleviate some of that suffering in whatever way you can. I think the kid me had an idea that it would be just a lot of happy endings, you know. But I think being prepared for sort of the messiness of it is, is a good thing. And also at the same time realizing that being a social worker, choosing that career, also requires you to have good boundaries and to realize that you're not all that important yeah. <laughs> you know that that you're playing a role but that you know there can be a, a real risk of like saviorism and you have to really be careful not to not to step into that too much you know mm. or at all <laughs> so yeah quick note at this point in the interview one set of mics stopped working luckily there was a backup set of mics that was also recording so for the rest of the interview, it's going to be on those backup mics. 
so you'll notice the sound difference. Okay, back to Kristen. The other thing that happened we were that morning, mm-hmm. we went to uh, Miller Park in the Salvation Army. Yep. And we were walking around Miller Park, and we encountered someone behind Dollar General. Right. They were just kind mm-hmm. of sitting there, mm-hmm. and you talked with them because you were talking with everybody who was mm-hmm. kind of sitting out that looked mm-hmm. like they might have spent the night outside. And I didn't record it. I didn't do it. But we were just there, and it was. And you started talking, and I guess he had spent the night outside. Mm-hmm. And you started doing the survey. And in the middle of that survey, this moment just stuck with me. He said to you, I guess to both of us because you're both there, but really to you because you're really, he said, Promise me that everything's going to be okay. And it was a real plea, mm-hmm. it felt like. I mean, he in this moment, to be reassured. I'm like, ah, what? what is she, I'm not going to say anything. What is she going to say? Because that's a really tough... In that moment, you want to say, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. But you didn't. Do you remember what you said? Because I remember what she said. Not really. Kind of. I remember this moment, but I don't quite mm-hmm. remember how I handled it. I th- you handled it beautifully. You said... I can't promise you that, but I can promise you that you'll have a bed to sleep in tonight and tomorrow's a new day. It was so good. It was such a good (laughs) word because I wanted to be like, jump in like, yeah, it's going to be great. Everything's going to be great. But like your experience tells you that that's not something you can promise, right? That no one can promise. Right. Yeah. It's true. I think one thing I have learned over the years being a social worker is that the only way to build real trust with my clients is to be honest and true to my word mm-hmm. and not promise things that I can't deliver on. Um, because most of the folks that are living in poverty and then have to ask for help to, at these different agencies and through different resources are used to maybe kind of being let down. Not by individuals per se, but maybe, maybe by yeah. individuals, but also just by policies and procedures, by bureaucracy, by whatever, you know. And so... To the extent that I can, I, I want to be as, as honest as I can be about what I can actually do for somebody. Um, yeah. So in that moment, yeah, we could call the shelter and we got him a bed. And that was that was what we could do. Yeah. I thought it was great because I had no idea what to say. <laughs> <laughs> and it is tempting to say everything's going to be fine. And yeah. I'm not, you know. Yeah. But I, he it seemed to really resonate with him. Right. Okay. There's this power in that there's tomorrow's a new day. Right. Right. Yeah. For any of us, right? And for people who are surviving, you know, tomorrow is the sometimes the best they can hope for until things get a little better, and then they can look ahead to you know the next week or the next month. And that that is an amazing thing is to like, I have some clients that that still come to aftercare, and they're you know they're at a point now where they can save some money and think ahead to like going on a vacation and things that that once once they have a little room to breathe, they're not necessarily totally in the clear it doesn't mean you know they're they're never going to experience a financial crisis or a housing crisis yeah. again but they're at a place where they can they can think beyond tomorrow and that's really cool and i think just makes me feel happy that they can have sort of a, a fuller existence than just yeah. surviving one day at a time yeah what's a good day in the office look like for you Good day in the office. That's a great question. Um, so my days are kind of split between working directly with the women in our supportive housing program. So I usually see a handful of them every day. A good day there is really 
hearing an update from them that something has something we've been working on has come together. Mm-hmm. You know, they've they've finally gotten word back from disability that they've been approved. That doesn't happen every day, but when that happens, we're rejoicing. Yeah. <laughs> or um, they've they've gotten a part time job. You know, something something that is sort of progress for them uh, based on how they've kind of defined what they what they see as progress in their life. Or for some of my the tenants that I'm working with that are maybe a little more recently moved in or have ongoing sort of untreated mental illness. Sometimes it's just some kind of breakthrough where they they tell me something or they trust me a little more. Or mm-hmm. They disclose something that I didn't know before. Mm-hmm. You know, that those are all feel like really good days. And then my other sort of hat is is supervising our rapid rehousing program and the case managers that work in that program and pretty frequently they come to my office to tell me that they found housing for somebody and they they need me to sign off on a security deposit check or a utility deposit or whatever and those are always great days you know yeah. and we keep a little bulletin board with all of the the families that we've housed and to kind of visualize that sort of concrete need that we've met for that family so that's a really good day. <laughs> yeah. What's a hard day? Mm. Um, so hard days. Hard days are, um, sometimes it's, it's you know, talking with our street outreach worker and knowing there's people that are sleeping outside and we don't have an answer for them. So mm. when we sit down and talk through cases, we might be aware of somebody who's sleeping under a bridge and we can't come up with a, a, a housing option for them. That's like a tough thing to go home with is knowing that someone just doesn't have an option and they're going to be outside. And then with clients, you know, it, it, it can be hard if, you know, if a client has a relapse or a client has a new crisis come up and they just have a setback, you know. So we, we recently ha- have had um, one of my aftercare participants who's been stably housed for years, um, lost her job and she's scrambling to not get evicted and th- that can be hard because it feels like we're, we're losing ground you know mm-hmm. and yeah but most days are good honestly That's cool. yeah <laughs> I have to say that Lynchburg you know there are tons of resources and tons of people who are looking for ways to help and even though sometimes it's not adequate I, I do feel like for almost every challenge that a client brings me there's there's something I can point them to to try to bring them a little relief for help with their situation you know we don't have all the answers but there's all these other agencies and resources that that are great partners and so even on those bad days that feel kind of like I don't know you know that that we've something's fallen through the cracks with a with a client there's usually some some other agency we can connect with so what would you most want the people of Lynchburg to know about the work that you do to understand about what you do I think I would want the community to know that homelessness is, while it is varied, at the end of the day, the thing that every homeless person shares is that they don't have a home. (laughs) And that while it's not easy, it is fairly simple that the solution to homelessness is housing. So whether it's through, um, you know, financial support or just supporting the idea that the 800 people that become homeless in Lynchburg in a year, I absolutely believe we can house all of them. Yeah. If as a community, we have the the will to do that. And so not just the homeless response partners, but 
leaders throughout the community and then just everyday folks. If we're all kind of on that same page that 800 people can be housed, which I totally believe is, is possible, then the, the services that come into play to help them keep that housing, those exist. You know, yeah. we can make those connections. So I just come back to this, like, like homelessness is totally solvable. It really is. Mm-hmm. And while those 800 people are going through something really hard and fundamentally they've lost like that, that bottom of the peer of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, they, they're lacking the most fundamental thing. So that is traumatic and, and difficult at the same time it can be solved and and 800 is not it's not an undoable thing you know so yeah so we've been talking a lot about uh numbers and sort of generally the work and philosophy but can you tell us like a a story of how this might go how your work goes sure Um, you don't have to use any names or anything but just a general story yeah well i I, i'll use a pseudonym and i'll tell the story of deborah who is a single mom I first met her several years ago. She had become homeless because of domestic violence. Mm. Um, she'd been working at as a as a CNA for many years at the same job, so uh, hard worker, stably employed, but her wages weren't such that she had a lot of savings. And so, when she decided to flee for her safety and for her children's safety, she didn't have enough money saved up to you know, pay all of those sort of upfront costs you need to get into a new apartment. So she and her two kids, she has a son and a daughter, they ended up in the shelter. And I remember I did their intake in their shelter room, sitting on her bed. And, you know, some of the questions on the intake are personal to an extent and talking to her about her history of homelessness. And, you know, she was just scared and felt like she had failed and her kids were in the room and and I could just tell she she felt ashamed and and so I said you know we ended up skipping over a lot of the the questions on the intake because I, I knew I could just see in her face that she was feeling like as much as she did what she had to do for her own safety she was just felt like she had failed as a parent you know and her kids were both, especially her older daughter, um, who was 16 at the time, and her son was 10. They, they both were having a hard time in school and a hard time with, you know, this abrupt disruption in their life and change in their life. So we ended up working with her on finding housing that she could afford. This whole she continued to work through this whole thing, um, this whole ordeal, and. They were, they were very lucky to, to get approved for a subsidized housing apartment so that her income, her rent would be based on her income and she could maintain that over time. And so she and her kids got moved in. We helped them get furniture. We helped them get sort of settled. We connected them with Judy Brooks and made yeah. sure that they had all their school um, transportation set up and that they were able to sort of um, make that transition as smoothly as possible. And um, just last week, she stopped by, um, Deborah stopped by, and this is years later, um, with her now 20-year-old daughter who has a baby and just had her, just had her first child. And so, you know, they're, they're a, a family that we continue to work alongside and um, have a relationship with, which I love. And her daughter told me that she wants to go to school to be a social worker. So I'm so, so excited about that. <laughs> um, I love it. 
and her son's playing sports and doing great in school. And so I, I think it, it shows that people that are working really hard and doing all the right things, quote unquote, you know, they're, they're trying their very best to sometimes end up homeless. And once you restore their housing, other things start to kind of fall in place. That's good. Yeah. That's so good. You know, this idea of, of home keeps coming up, of mm-hmm. having a home and what you're able to do, you get normalcy, stability, you can play sports, you can just, as a, from a kid in this perspective, have fun. Do your you homework. Can do your homework. You can <laughs> yeah. dream about being a, what you might do in the future. Right. That seems to be mm-hmm. something I keep hearing. What, what did home mean to you as a kid? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I am extremely lucky um, and privileged to have grown up in a home that, you know, was just completely loving and supportive. And I had, you know, two parents that still have them. But as a kid living at home with them, they anything I was interested in, anything I wanted to explore, you know, they supported it completely. They invested all of their time into me and my brother, you know, I might start crying. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I think just, sorry, me getting emotional even speaks to like what home means because it, um, it determines who you are as a person, you know? And so I guess like part of me does feel like super motivated in this field because I was lucky to have um, the foundation that a stable, like, you know, loving, warm Mm. home, like, that has impacted everything I've done since then, you know. Yeah. Um, and my parents created an environment in our home that communicated to both me and my brother that we were valuable and that we would do good things in our life. And, you know, so I, I think it's hard to overstate, like, what a home, you know, means to yeah. somebody. And I do have to say, you can edit this out if you want to, but... <laughs> Growing up, I always would tell my parents that our house was too small. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, it's just a brick ranch house. It's Now I would love to have that house. Um, but as a kid, I was like weirdly self-conscious that our house was too small. Yeah. And I always tell my parents that I wanted them to move to a bigger house. <laughs> And now if they would, if they even mentioned moving, I'd be like, no way, you can't leave our house because they've lived in the same home since they got married in 1975. So yeah, that's funny. So I'm really attached to it now, but I used to be, I don't know why, but. Yeah, yeah. it's funny the things you think as a kid. Yeah. But now, so that's what you do now, right? Is you are recreating that for other people. Yeah. That trying to. home base. Yeah. They, they get to determine what goes, how, how that house becomes a home, right? Mm-hmm. But you want to recreate what you had. I mean, I, I would, I could only hope that my, the families that I work with could experience, you know, home in that sense. And that yeah. is uh, a mission worth working towards for sure. Yeah. And that sounds what, like what Deborah did. Right? Yeah. She's yeah. got a daughter, an older mm-hmm. daughter who wants to be a social worker and a younger son that plays sports. Yeah. <laughs> That's... And she goes to all of his, you know, track meets and games and, yeah. You know, she's she's an awesome mom. Yeah. And I think having and maintaining a home has restored that sense of pride for her, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming over and thank you. talking with me. It's been great. I loved it. And thank you for the work that you guys do. Thank you. Big thank you to Kristen for sitting down with me and for the work that she does. 
because of her and her team at Miriam's house, more people in the Lynchburg neighborhood have a home. And that's something to celebrate. See you next time.